Good evening and welcome to today's lecture. Uh, I am Maha Azam. I'm an associate fellow at Chatham House on the Middle East and North Africa program. And um, I have great pleasure in introducing my guest today, well, your guest today, your, and known to all of you, Professor Fawaz Girgis. Um, we were supposed to have a panel today with uh, Dr. Moon Fadi, but unfortunately he can't be with us this evening. So I have been asked to step in as well as chairing this meeting and um, to make some comments um, after uh, Fawaz has, uh, has finished. I myself have been in Egypt recently and it was in Tahrir Square and uh, I have some general comments perhaps to make on, on uh, this subject. Uh, today's title is one that gives me great pleasure to be introducing, because normally when we talk about the Middle East or anything related to the Islamic world, it's related in some way over the past few years to the issue of terrorism or violence or jihad. But today's title, A Perfect Storm in the Arab World, uh, is a great one, and uh, hopefully the beginning of real change in that part of the world. Uh, professor Fawaz Girgis is a professor of Middle Eastern politics and international relations at the LSE. He also holds the Emirates Chair of the Contemporary Middle East and is the director of the Middle East Center here at the LSE. Professor Girgis is author of two recently acclaimed books, Journey of the Jihadist, Inside Muslim Militancy, uh, and another renowned publication, The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global. He's uh, currently working on two books. His forthcoming book, The Rise and Fall of Al-Qaeda, What American and Western Politicians Don't Want to Know, which is going to be published by OUP uh, this year. And uh, the other book, Obama and the Greater Middle East, Rhetoric versus Reality, also due to be published uh, in 2011 by Macmillan. So, uh, without further ado, thank you. Thanks, Paul, please. Thanks, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I know how busy you are, and as you know, we we have put this particular panel at the last moment. It's really for you. We were supposed to be a panel. It's not just myself and Maha, but uh, we'll try to really. Uh, be as effective as possible. This is not a lecture. It's really more of a conversation. Uh, and I really would like it, to be, to like it to be this way. What I will do is I want to put some ideas on the table, some basic ideas, and then Maha, uh, uh, I hope that she will respond to my uh, arguments, and then we can, we can open the floor for questions and answers. Uh, let me start first by saying is that, and this is a cliche, that's truly a historic moment. Uh, this is really one of the major historical moments in the history of the modern Middle Eastern state. Uh, I think what I'm trying to say, we should be conscious of the historical significance of this particular moment. I don't think we should be, we should not really let our, ourselves be complacent 20 years from now, we should say we lived through that particular momentous uh, period. Uh, and I think, of course, like all great events, it's going to take us time and space to appreciate the meaning and the significance, the multiple meanings 
of this particular historical moment uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and this, the reason why it's historic, because I'll say why in a minute, because it's really shaking the very foundation of the modern state system that has been in place since the early 1920s. This leads me to another critical point that I want to put on the table, and I really would like to hear your views about it. That is, uh, it's not just a historic moment. This is a revolutionary moment. Again, uh, what we are seeing throughout the Middle East, not just in the Arab world, but even non-Arab Iran, is what I call no less than social revolutions. Uh, and what I mean by social revolutions are broadly based, broadly based representative movements that basically encompass critical segments or majorities of the population. And what I mean by broadly based social movements, I'm talking about uh, the middle class, I'm talking about the poor, I'm talking about professionals, professionals, I'm talking about judges, I'm talking about teachers, I'm talking about labor, I'm talking about Islamists. This is a bottom-up, authentic social movement that represents critical segments of Middle Eastern populations. And that's why it's not just historic, it is revolutionary because the social movements in Tunisia, in Egypt, in uh, Algeria, in uh, Libya, everywhere, it's not just about what we call tactical change. The critical segment, the social movements are calling for transformation of state and society. That is, the replacement of the existing order with a more representative order, more pluralistic order, more egalitarian order, a just order. And that's why it's both historic and revolutionary uh, at the same uh, time. And I think I, I want to really stress this particular point. We should not lose sight of this particular critical point, that this is not just a tactical uh, development. This is a strategic, substantive, revolutionary development. And I would argue the social revolutions that are sweeping the Middle East, again, not just in the Arab world, I would argue that Iran is as susceptible as Arab societies really represent, uh, I mean, as great revolutions as the great revolutions that have taken place in the international system, with a very simple exception. They are peaceful revolutions, even though they are transformative revolutions, unlike the great social revolutions that have taken place in the international system. And I would argue that the Libyan case does not falsify my argument about the relative peacefulness of what's happening in the Middle East. Here you have peaceful protesters in Libya facing uh, uh, the massive firepower of the Qaddafi regimes. They have not started, they did not start with using force. It's the regime that basically using massive force against the social protesters in almost every single city uh, in Libya. Of course, having said that this is a revolutionary moment, uh, I mean, the social revolutions, uh, it does not mean that the end result will be revolutionary change, even though the fundamental goal of the social movements in almost every single country is transformation. That is, uh, uh, it depends, as you well know, transformation depends on multiple uh, factors. Uh, uh, and what I'm talking about is that um, I would argue that it's very difficult 
to predict the uh, nature and the character of change that will take place in the Middle East uh, in the short and the medium term as opposed to uh, long term. But regardless of what happens in the transitional period, regardless of whether the army remain con controls the political space in Middle Eastern societies, um, I would argue that uh, what we have witnessed in the Middle East in the last few weeks uh, represents a rupture in the political and social system, not just in the political system, a major rupture. Uh, you have people now all over the Middle East empowered, emboldened. They realize they can really affect change in their societies. The old equation no longer exists in the Middle East. The old equation was based on a simple formula. People were terrified of their governments. Now the equation has been turned on its head. Governments are terrified of their population. And this is, I would argue, it's a positive and promising recipe for change, if not in the short and medium terms, I would argue in uh, the longer terms. Of course, again, I would argue that, and I, I hope to hear uh, Maha's views and your own uh, feedback on this, uh, transformation of Middle Eastern societies will take decades, not just months or years. And transformation will likely depend on the role of the army, because the army is the most dominant uh, uh, force, uh, institution in Arab and Middle Eastern societies. It also depends on the role of the great powers, particularly the United States of America, and whether the Obama administration and U.S. foreign policy is willing to nudge armies in the Arab world to basically uh, relinquish power to transparent governments to civilian leadership. That is, the jury is still out. The military remains in power. In, well, the military is the driver behind now uh, the power structure in both uh, Tunisia and uh, Egypt. And I would argue, regardless of what happens in Libya, the army is the most viable uh, force that will likely uh, uh, guide uh, uh, the transition in Libya, in Algeria, if and when revolution uh, reaches uh, Algeria. I think if you really, if, if we want to understand the intensity of empowerment, the intensity of political and social empowerment, we just need to take a look at what's happening even in Tunisia and Algeria and Jordan and Morocco and other societies. You have protests across the social space, labor, teachers, workers, judges, professionals, across the space. The millions of voiceless Arabs and Middle Easterners have regained their voice. Truly, it's for all of us who work on the Middle East, this is one of the most fascinating periods. Tremendous social upheaval. And that's why I say this particular social upheaval, it's really across the board. It represents critical segment of Middle Eastern uh, populations because the millions of voiceless people that have been, as you, as you well know, under autocratic government for many, many years have finally realized they are powerful. They can really make effect change uh, in their societies. And the armies, whether in Tunisia or Egypt or Algeria and other places, they're terrified of the new uh, power. And I think it's this sense of revival, cultural and social and political revival, that really is fascinating to all of us. Because the idea, remember, the idea, the dominant idea in our field was that 
There is no uh, civil society in that part of the world. There are no vibrant civil societies in that part of the world. The autocratic state has devoured civil societies. You have the Arab streets, do you remember? The dominant, if you read the newspapers, the Arab streets. There is no public opinion. Uh, yet, what we have discovered, well, some of us have discovered, there is public opinion. There are social movements. There are critical voices. There is a vibrant society in that part of the world, despite, despite more than 50 years of one of the most bloodiest political authoritarianism uh, in the world. And I think what I'm trying to really say is that you cannot understand, we cannot understand what's happening in that part of the world without understanding the transformation of the psychology in that part of the world. It's only on the psychological and symbolic level that we can understand the intensity and the fundamental change uh, in attitudes and, and sensibilities uh, throughout the region, really across the region, whether it's in Bahrain or whether minorities, labor, you name it. It's, it's a sense of empowerment uh, and uh, revival, which, of course, threatening the foundation of the authoritarian order that has existed since the uh, early to mid-1950s. Uh, Even senior army officers are now fully aware of the changing psychology of their population. A week, a week after the ouster of President Mubarak on Friday, two million Egyptians came out on the streets to basically celebrate the victory of the revolution. That was a very powerful, direct message to the army, the army that basically now is in charge of, of, of government in Egypt. And I would argue that the message has not been lost on the army. It is the power of the people. And that's exactly what the leaders of the revolution uh, have tried to do. I'm not suggesting that the army will not do its best to retain power. I'm not suggesting that the army is a democratic force. All I am suggesting that even those army officers who would like to retain power to basically control society must take into account the changing psychology, the power of people, the new balance of social forces that has changed the character and the face of the Middle East. And I also would argue that the tide is so powerful now. Uh, there is, if there is an argument, and I, I would like to make, is that there is no safe regime in the Middle East today. There is no safe regime in, in the Middle East today because of this sense of empowerment, the sense of revival, uh, both cultural, political, and social. And also because of, and I will say a few words about you know, why, uh, what fuels this particular uh, drive, talk about the substance of this particular, not just the psychology uh, of it. Uh, even Iran is as vulnerable as Morocco and Algeria because again, well, Iran has been, has always been one of the most vibrant and complex societies. Uh, I don't need to tell you about Iranian history. Uh, Iran does not really follow. Iran has always still had a change in the Muslim world. As you all know, the first social revolution uh, took place not in the Arab world, took place in the heart of Iran, that is the uh, late 1970s revolution. Uh, and here I, I want to make a qualification. I'm not suggesting that all the states are together, uh, similar. I'm not suggesting that we need to lump all the states and say Tunisia is Egypt or Egypt is Yemen or Yemen is Libya. Not at all. There are critical differences 
among the various states. And I don't need to tell you that this is the, the, the culture, even the, the intensity of political authoritarianism. But here I would argue that there are critical shared similarities, critical shared similarities that help explain the social revolutions that have basically rocked the very foundation of the modern Middle Eastern state. And here I want to say, I want to spend a few minutes about uh, uh, what are these shared uh, similarities, social, political, and economic similarities that help us understand, make sense of why social revolutions have finally burst out into the modern Middle Eastern states. Again, the first point I would like to make is that what you do have in the Middle East across the board is a prolonged uh, authoritarian political system, a closed political system. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, you know, when, when, when the democratic wave reached Eastern Europe in the, in the uh, 1980s, we said the idea was it's a shame that that particular democratic wave had never reached the Arab shores. Here you have very deeply entrenched security apparatus. You have leaders who have been in power. Take Muammar Qaddafi, 42 years. Ali Abdullah Saleh of Yemen, 31 years. Uh, Husni Mubarak of Egypt, 31 years. The Assad's family since the 1970s. Uh, and on and on and on. Well, the Hashemite kingdom, well, since the birth of the kingdom itself. Uh, so not only you have a prolonged, a prolonged authoritarian political structure, closed political system. The second point is, again, I don't need to tell you about the failed economies. Not only you have political authoritarianism, not only you have autocratic governments that have bled their societies dry, that have oppressed their people. You have dismal social economic conditions in the region. I don't have the time, and you know, I'm not an economist, but just in terms of really anecdotal uh, 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 information about the conditions. Uh, you have 300 million Arabs. On average, you have almost 150 million Arabs who live either in poverty or below the poverty line. 150 million Arabs live either in poverty. Egypt, 84 million people. You have 43% of Egyptians, and forget the World Bank's uh, data, please. It all comes from governments. All you have to do is to travel to the poverty belts in, Egypt, in Cairo to realize the extent, the hellishness of life in, in various Arab countries. All you have to do is to go to the, 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 the uh, uh, urban poverty belts, even in Beirut and Algeria and other places, to realize and how how dismal the social economic conditions. So not only you have oppressive governments, you have governments that have failed to deliver the basic necessities of life for their uh, population. So not only you have autocratic governments and dismal social conditions, you have rising expectations of millions and millions of Arabs and Middle Easterners who basically, young men and women who represent majorities of their population. Again, I'm simplifying and, and probably a great deal. On average, 60% of Arab populations, Middle Eastern populations, 60% are below the ages of 30 years old. Huge constituency. Uh, and the, the expectations of this particular constituency has been, of course, rising because, and this leads me to another point, is the new media, the, the, the access to the internet, the internet revolution. Uh, uh, so uh, what we call really globalization. So in the 1980s and early 1990s, governments basically controlled the flow of information to their population. Since the mid-1990s, basically governments can no longer control the flow of information. 
Al Jazeera, the so-called Al Jazeera effect, basically was able to connect all Middle Easterns or most Arabs uh, uh, to one another. Uh, it was able to show them what's happening in their societies, small villages in Beirut and Sudan and Libya and Egypt and Al-Sa'id, Upper Egypt, everywhere. The Al Jazeera effect basically was really in many ways played a critical part in, in educating, informing citizens about what's happening in their societies, not just what's happening in terms uh, of foreign policy. So in this particular sense, you might say, why now? Well, here you have, I mean, globalization, you have the new media, you have the Al Jazeera effect, you have the internet revolution, really, which has, in the last 20 years or so, has basically brought the Middle East to Middle Easterns, because in the 1980s up to the early 1990s, Arabs and Middle Easterns were not really informed about what's happening in their own societies. Another critical factor I really want to focus on is the further delegitimization of the Middle Eastern state system, and in particular the WikiLeaks, uh, um, I mean documents, have done a great deal of damage to the autocratic regimes that exist in that part of the world. Here, I mean, you have over weeks and weeks of revelations about how their leaders were submissive about, and this in the eyes, Al Jazeera and other stations, I mean, in, in, in very vivid terms, what the presidents and the monarchs were really talking, how they talked to American policymakers. Uh, the gap of political legitimacy was widened and deepened in the eyes of, of the Arab population, a critical factor in particular uh, in the last uh, year. Again, I don't need to tell you about corruption and the role of corruption. And I, I'm going to say it's not just about putting a shopping list here. Uh, when I say corruption, corruption permeates all aspects of life. In fact, it's a way of life. It's systemic. In Egypt and other places, corruption was a tool of state policy. Uh, and, and I talked a bit earlier about dismal social economic conditions. You can't understand the role of, I mean, how corruption has really fueled the, the, the revolt, the revolution in the region, without understanding how corruption really is organically linked to what we call crony capitalism in the Middle East. There is no, there are no economies in the Middle East. There are no liberal, there is no liberal capitalism or socialism. You have crony capitalism, a marriage between a small parasite business community and the power security elite. And this, in this particular sense, uh, the economy, the circulation was between this particular small, tiny, crony capitalism. There was no trickle-down effect. And that's why you have abject poverty and you have decadent wealth. And what globalization has done, what the new media has done, what Al Jazeera effect has done was to show Arab citizens exactly what's happening in their societies. That is, those people who are starving on living on less than $2 a day with the, the, the decadent wealth that basically was exhibited by their leaders and also by the tiny uh, 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 parasite uh, business uh, community. I cannot stress to you, for a person really who travels a great deal, who lives in the area, the importance of this. I mean, in, 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 in Muslim societies, the idea of justice goes to the very heart of these societies. That is, uh, justice matters. Uh, that is a sense of egalitarian uh, system. Here you have a system, I mean, that basically was based on the abject poverty and decadent wealth. And this really, it has gone to the very heart of the autocratic system uh, that exists in that part of the world. Here you might say, you have your shopping list. Have you 
predicted why didn't you tell us about this particular, I mean, the gathering storm in the Middle East? Have we underestimated, have we underestimated the structural crisis that was simmering in the Middle East? No, we did not overlook the simmering. Many of us, we have been barking about the boiling crisis in the region. I am one of these, just, and really this is not about my inaugural lecture last year here, and the same was called a broken Middle East. I talked about a broken Middle East. I said the Middle East was, and is still on, on the website. You have an institutional uh, wasteland. The Middle East is institutionally a wasteland. Because what you have is the cult of personality and nothing else. Whether it's Qaddafi or Mubarak or others, they basically substituted the cult of personality to institution. They decimated institutions. People did not have any faith in institutions in that part of the world. I talked a great deal about how millions of Egyptians wait several hours a day to get six loaves of bread, not just in Egypt, about economic poverty throughout the regions, the urban poverty belts. Uh, but we also talked at the same time about the fear factor, about the entrenched security apparatus, about political apathy. Even in Egypt and Algeria, people were terrified of the security apparatus, terrified to go out and protest against the bloody dictators. Uh, most of us, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine or envision that people in Libya or Egypt or Algeria or Tunisia would challenge and defy their bloody dictators. Here you have Hosni Mubarak of Egypt. He had more than a million, a million, more than a million actually, 1.4 entrenched security apparatus in the last 30 years. Uh, in Egypt, the, the idea was no political party except the Muslim Brotherhood would basically be able to really mobilize thousands of men and women to go on the streets because, again, political apathy. People were terrified. Uh, that's where we underestimated. We did not under, underestimate the crisis. What we overlooked and underestimated was the role of human agency. What we underestimated and overlooked was the role of agency, the human spirit, the ability of millions of Arabs, Egyptians, and Tunisians, and Algerians, and Libyans to defy, really, uh, 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 I mean, some of the most entrenched security apparatuses in the Middle East and risk their lives. This is what we underestimate, most of us. We did not under underestimate the structural nature of the crisis. But we did not take into account that most of our learning and, and, and theories about social sciences does not really equip us to understand human agency. That is how, I mean, think of what's happening in Libya today. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Libyans are defying the massive firepower of Qaddafi. Hundreds have been killed, if not thousands. Thousands have been injured. And this tells you about the human agency uh, and, and the importance of human agency in the social sciences and humanities. We knew what the crisis was. We were able, because it, it was there, you couldn't miss it. Whether you go to Algier, or you go to uh, uh, Tripoli, or you go to Cairo, or you go to uh, 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 Tunis, it was there. I mean, you, could, you can miss it on the moment you arrive at airports. But most of us really did not appreciate, did not really take into account uh, the role of the human spirit, the role of the agency, uh, human uh, agency. And I think what, what the human agency uh, has done has shattered many of the myth that many here in the West subscribe to. The idea is 
When Muslims and Arabs are given choices, they make the wrong choices. When they are asked to vote, they vote for Islamists. But the, the so-called universal values, democracy, uh, democracy and human rights don't matter. Islam and democracy, Islam and Muslims uh, and democracy were incompatible. We know all the research that we have done, by the way, tells us for the last 20 years that Arabs and Muslims want universal values. There is no difference. Uh, but of course, since 9-11, I don't need to tell you about the dominant narrative. That is, uh, uh, and this was basically, a, it's a, it's a well-constructed uh, or invented uh, narrative about, uh, also one of the myths that has been shattered is about the violent Arab on the one hand and the submissive Arab. That the Arab is violent, uh, terrorism and violence was the only tool. Uh, uh, and submissive because, again, the Arab would not dare, Arabs would not dare to challenge their tormentors, their autocrats. Again, what we have seen, the human agency, the human spirit, truly, uh, uh, the, how dignified those people are, how relatively peaceful these revolutions. I mean, think about it. If you had 40% of people who live on, on less than $2 a day, you would have expected massacres, a bloodbath. They would have burned, I mean, to me, I used to say, I would not be surprised to wake up one day to see Cairo on fire. I am pleasantly surprised that little violence has taken place. The poor did not really burn the palaces and the mansions of the wealthy. That there's a dignity to these social revolutions that we have witnessed. And this is, it's not just about how peaceful, but the dignity also now tells you it's the reverse of the dominant uh, stereotypical narrative that exists in the West. Also, I think, and this is, of course, it's too early, has also shattered the idea, I mean, the very ideology and tactics of Al-Qaeda itself. Think of what Al-Qaeda has fed Arabs and Muslims for the last, since the late 1990s. You cannot affect change in your societies. Politics doesn't matter, doesn't make a difference. The only way you affect change is by what? Terrorism and violence. You want to overthrow the system. Well, politics matters. Matters a great deal. And Arabs have shown that it's through the political process that, uh, that change can take place. Even though, even though, please remember, it's very, the dust has not, uh, uh, I mean, lifted yet. We, we have to wait and see how the transition uh, basically evolves and unfolds. Because you have the military forces now, the military army officers that remain uh, in place. But I think the dominant narrative now in the region about empowerment and about is that people can rise up and that's why the intensity I started by saying you have really the idea of empowerment is so critical now uh, uh, everywhere in Iraq, in Jordan in, in, uh, people feel that it can really affect the change and, and this is uh, that politics matter and I think what we're going to witness uh, in the medium term and the long term we're going to see a great deal of political upheaval uh, that is, uh, the army officers cannot, will not have a free hand. You trust me on this. They realize that there is now social movements. There are constituencies that are willing to die to have a different political system. And this is a new reality uh, that uh, even uh, the military officers who have taken over are fully aware of that. And I think I want to end here, and because I think Maha knows much more about this uh, point, is the whole notion of the myth of polarity in, in Arab and Muslim politics. The Middle East was seen either you have bloody dictators or you have Islamists. There was nothing between. 
There was no third force. We kept saying, where's the third, third force? Well, the reason why the West was terrified to take risks on free elections was if we don't invest capital in these bloody dictators, extremists would come to power. Because the idea, the dominant narrative, there was nothing between the organized Muslim Brotherhood and other uh, uh, mainstream Islamist movement and the bloody dictators. Well, what we know now, there's a huge third force. In fact, it is the alternative, it is the most powerful constituency in society. The Islamists are only one element, an integral element in the social landscape. You have centrists, you have human rights dissidents, you have human rights activists, professionals, judges, teachers, independent Islamists, and the Muslim Brotherhood. And it's really this particular idea that Middle Eastern societies, and if I want to end, there is nothing exceptional. There is nothing unique about Arab and Muslim societies except dignity and decency and the peacefulness of the social revolutions that have taken place in that part of the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I have to act as chair and respondent. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, Fawaz. That was an extremely rich presentation. And um, I think what I'd like to do is to just pick out some of what really is not a shopping list, but reflects the challenges uh, that people have had to face throughout that region, uh, whether it is uh, autocratic rule, corruption, uh, lack of respect for human rights, uh, lack of the rule of law, um, that, that long list, as you say, that you've put before us is really the challenges that have been faced for decades by people across the region. And perhaps to pick out a little bit the, some of those challenges and the challenges that I think that remain with us today, despite the successes in Tunisia and Egypt, and the ongoing protests elsewhere in the region. I think you rightly speak of a revolutionary moment, but it's still a revolution in the making, as you well acknowledge. Um, I think one of the most important phrases that has been often repeated, is, and which I felt came into being really from as early as 2005, is that the barrier of fear was starting to break in our part of the world. It came on the back of some political reform and the, the Bush's idea of the freedom agenda. And for all, and I'm going to be maybe a little bit controversial here, because I was in Egypt, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia at the time, and many disliked the idea of US interference in the, in the region and the call for political reform. However, at the time I felt that the dictators that were there in power were not going to budge unless something happened on the ground akin to what we're seeing now, or if they came under extreme pressure from, for example, the United States. So a little bit of pressure helped open the door somewhat in Egypt in terms of, for example, creating a freer atmosphere for the media. There was also pressure from inside the country from opposition forces and so on. So we had as early as 2005 parliamentary elections in Egypt that allowed 
the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, running as independents to gain 20% of the parliamentary vote, and so on and so forth. In different parts of the region, one step forward in terms of political reform, two steps back. And then we saw eventually, five years on in Egypt in 2010, the sham of parliamentary elections in November 2010, which wiped out <laughs> the Muslim Brotherhood from Parliament and even a secular party like the WEFT, preparing the way really for the, 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 the hegemony, the greater hegemony of the ruling National Democratic Party. So in a sense, we weren't really seeing freedom agenda or not. We weren't really seeing any palpable changes in the region. But we were seeing something very revolutionary happening. And that is that a new generation, a young generation, and remember that part of the world, the majority of, has a very large percentage of young, were starting to question authority. It's not that for, that for the first time authority has been questioned. Political organizations from communists to Muslim Brotherhood have, been, have suffered and confronted regimes and been imprisoned for, for decades. Um, in the region. Throughout the 20th century, whether in Iraq, in Syria, or Egypt, people have struggled against their regimes. So I think that's an important point to make because we often hear about this new generation of young. They're certainly at the forefront. They have certainly uh, been um, uh, the key players in bringing these protests about. But this has been a long, drawn-out struggle against dictatorial regimes in the region. And in a sense, we need to give it a degree of, of context and, and history. Uh, this is a struggle that has gone on throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. Um, I think there's a caveat, really, to what you were saying on Iran, Fawaz, which, in a sense, maybe you could respond to in the discussion. And that is, when we speak of Iran and social revolution, Iran has had a social revolution in 1979. That was a social, social revolution, was it not? Yes. It doesn't mean it can't have another one, but it did have a social revolution. And really, in a sense, represented revolution in its more classical understanding of revolution. Um, it overthrew its people, again, dynamic, its religious leaders, its, its uh, merchant classes and so on came together in a social revolution to overthrow a tyrant. And it was in many ways also a cultural revolution. So in a sense, what is in the making now is not necessarily a counter-revolution, which again fits into the idea, our historical understanding of revolutions, but in a sense an extension of that revolution. It also makes me wonder whether Fukuyama was right. In a sense, are we all moving, and this is playing the devil's advocate, are we all moving, whether through revolution or not, or globalization, as was once posited, towards democratization? Is that the inevitable uh, end game? And has it in some ways been drawn up for us by globalization? In a sense, what we're seeing today is it's not quite so. People in the region are creating their own revolution. They're picking and they're choosing. They're saying we want 
this much from the United States and not so much from the United States. And the game is still being played out. And in a sense, one of the main institutions that is going to tell us a lot about how people are going to respond to structures that, 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 uh, that the power structures is the military and how people are going to respond to that military. Because both in Tunisia and Egypt, and I would say in Egypt perhaps more so, the links between the military and the United States are formidable. And in Egypt, the military is deified to some extent. It is being that myth of the military and the people and the army being one is being decimated somewhat. Because I think if a people can stand up against one authority, that is Mubarak and his regime, they can stand up against another. So the military now is more exposed. It's always been the bulwark of the regime. It has been the backbone of the regime in Egypt since 1952. Um, but now it is at the forefront of politics. It has, to, it, plays, it has to play a very careful game today because Egyptians either for tactical reasons or because they really feel the military was on their side when they were trying to get rid of Mubarak, are still careful about confronting the military. It may be a clever move at this stage on the part of protesters and opposition groups and so on, because the military is powerful um, and it is, the, the, the structures such as the security structure, uh, the state security structure in Egypt is still intact. I mean, much has changed, but much is still in place. The military is there, the, the business interests, although there are many people on trial for corruption and so on, business interests are still entrenched. Uh, the military has its tentacles throughout Egyptian society, both its politics, both in politics and business. Um, as I said, the state security structure, to all intents and purposes, at least the military aspect of it is still very much there. The military arm of it is very much there. And the brutality of the police force that we've heard a great deal about and the unpopularity of the police force, in a sense, it was also used by the security services to do, they were used by the security services to do their dirty work. So this, we need to remember that the police force, in the same way that the Egyptian army is part and parcel of the people as a conscript army, the police force also didn't come from nowhere. They were poorly paid, badly treated, committed crimes, but at the end of the day, there was knowledge of this by the state security apparatus and the highest echelons of the military and the regime. For as you spoke of empowerment, and I think, I think that is a key, key aspect of, um, of what's happening today. The empowerment that people sought in the region for several decades was 
not the majority by any means, but a minority in the region, was through violence, through terrorism, through the idea of jihad, something that you know a great deal about. But in a sense, Al-Qaeda and its supporters were not able to win hearts and minds. And the testimony to that is what's happening today, that empowerment eventually, true empowerment for the majority is being sought through non-violent means. And I think that is, in a sense, one of the most important revolutionary developments uh, that, that, that is happening in that part of the world. And is testimony, in some ways, to countering, again, the myth and the connection between Muslim societies and the appeal of violence and the resort to, to terrorism. When we speak about contexts being different, I agree totally. I think across the region, um, we, we're dealing with very different societies, some more tribal, some uh, where institutions are, um, have, have greater roots, others that have greater economic problems, and so on. So yes, the contexts are different, but to put it simply, the grievances are the same. And I think that is key. And that's why we're seeing uh, this unraveling of the state system throughout the region, uh, whether we're dealing with monarchies, tribal societies, countries like Egypt where the military is key, the grievances are very, very similar. And the grievances, I would just point out in a sense, or reiterate what you've mentioned, are to do with lack of accountability, lack of participation, and lack of respect for the rule of law. And I think it, the essence of these protests is not only about freedom, the freedom to speak out, but about a sense of justice that people are calling for. Um, the slogans that I heard <coughs> most in Tahrir when I, when I was there were to do with the issue of corruption, not only the bringing down of Mubarak, the stepping down of Mubarak, the end of the regime, but slogans that, and comments about, we want our money back, we want justice. Um, there were left-wing uh, uh, people there, there were, uh, there were just a variety, a cross-section of society and different political orientations from the extreme left to, to liberals. And that sort of perhaps is worth a mention, the Islamists were there. But it's interesting that again, they had the Muslim Brotherhood had decided that it was not going to raise religious banners. It doesn't mean that they weren't present. They said we were going to be there, we're going to be in the protests, but we're not going to be there as the Muslim Brotherhood. And I heard from friends who were there as well over the whole period that the presence of the Muslim Brotherhood was, was, was very palpable. Uh, that they behaved in a way where they did not push their agenda. And there was a great deal of praise for them, particularly on those days where there was government violence against the protesters, uh, and where they said that the Muslim Brotherhood's presence and their organization was extremely important in saving the square. 
I think, again, maybe at this point it's worth mentioning that, as you rightly said, the Brotherhood is only one element and one component in what has become a very diverse political um, uh, political um, uh, different poli uh, a situation where there are very many political orientations. And this is not only the case in Egypt, but across the board. The Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan has its place and its importance in Kuwait and so on. But I think we're seeing the growth and development of liberal tendencies, of uh, more secular tendencies. But it's worth mentioning that the Brotherhood are very aware of this. They are, the Muslim Brotherhood is a very astute political organization. For example, in the case of Egypt, it's decided not to field a presidential candidate, and it's decided not to run so many parliament, limit the number of parliamentary candidates that would run in free and fair elections, so that they wouldn't receive any more than 20% of the vote, and probably less. And I've heard this from people in the Muslim Brotherhood themselves, and it's a strategy that they are, they are going to pursue. You can say this is tactical, they're going to make a comeback later. It's difficult to say, but they seem to be committed to free and fair elections. They seem to be committed to participating in a multi-party system. And I think a new generation of members of the Brotherhood would like to see their organization become more akin to the AKP in Turkey. Um, the notion that somehow the Middle East and its peoples for decades have been unable to forge a new future or a new identity and that these societies are in some way static and lethargic is a very old argument. It's one that goes back to the Orientalists and some ways was regurgitated again and again. And as Fawaz mentioned, many of us always felt that these societies were on the brink of something. But we expected that when things exploded and we always thought they might in Egypt or elsewhere, they'd bring out the mob that would burn and pillage. This hasn't been the case. But I'm fearful that we might be too optimistic. I think this is an opportunity, in a sense, to forge a different future for, these, for the countries of the region. But that future needs to be based on social justice as much as liberty. And the lack of social justice and the anger and disappointment that might ensue if there isn't social justice and a redistribution to some degree of wealth and greater transparency both in the economic sphere as well as the political sphere, then we may have the eruptions that we have always feared. Thank you very much. Yes. So we have um, about half an hour before we have to vacate this hall. So I will um, start taking questions. And perhaps if we uh, take about four questions at a time.
And uh, if you wait for the microphone, and um, if you could introduce yourself, uh, that would be great. And please, please keep your questions short, because this is a very full hall. And if you don't, I um, will cut you short. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, gentlemen in the third row, please. Uh, hi, good evening. Um, my name is William Wong. Would it be fair to say, amongst many complex issues and factors, uh, the combination of YouTube, Facebook and Twitter in particular, has been a potent uh, tool or platform in this revolution? My question is, they've been around for five years or so, Twitter just over three years. Why has it taken so long? Because you hear these uh, people being interviewed on television say, you know, this is a Facebook-led revolution in, in Egypt, for instance, or Tunisia. So I was wondering why only now and not earlier? And perhaps what next? Thank you very much. All right. In the front row, that Ali Fatanejad Soas. First of all, as in Iran, I'd like to say Mabruk to the Arab people. Uh, secondly, um, I wanted to ask since, um, I mean, you, nowadays you can see that Western politicians are really, uh, I mean, they, have, they are in a state of angst vis-a-vis -vis the situation in the Middle East. So I was wondering if you could comment, Professor Georges, on um, uh, the interest of the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, the developments in Egypt in the future in terms of also um, um, the fear probably of a democratic transition in Egypt and also vis-a-vis -vis, uh, developments in the um, sheikhdoms around the Persian Gulf also in terms of, uh, so in the context of US regional but also global hegemony. Thank you. All right, and the, the edge. Uh, this is Mohammed al I'm from Saudi Arabia. I have um, a question. If this revolution wave propagates and reaches the bank of oil and gas in the area, in the Gulf, uh, what do you think the response of the international community and the other parts of the Arab world to that? Thank you so much. Okay, anyone at the back? All right, middle of that back, uh, in the center. Yeah, can someone go with a microphone towards the back? Hey, good evening. I'm William Miller. Um, I was just wondering, all this really started when a man in Tunisia set himself on fire. And this caused the revolution in Tunisia that spread to Egypt, which is now spread to Libya and looks to spread elsewhere. Would this cultural revolution have happened if not for a monumentous event such as that? Thank you very much. Shall we take this one? You want to start? Yeah. Let me let me start. Uh, you can talk for me, yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I want to start the question uh, about uh, the U.S. role in the transition. I think uh, we are probably, while we celebrate uh, this particular moment, I think the risks and the challenges are overwhelming. Um, my take on it is that uh, the transition will be messy. Rocky, there will be setbacks. We're talking about decades, not years, for the region itself to really transition to a democratic, if it does, a democratic, more transparent uh, 
political and uh, economic system. I mean, let's keep in mind, it has taken Turkey five decades, 50 years, to institutionalize the relationship between the army and the civilian leadership. And Turkey is still evolving. That is more than 50 years. Uh, while in the Arab worlds, uh, there are hardly any institutions. The, the most dominant, uh, powerful institution is the army itself. Um, and we are still unconvinced that the army, the, the senior echelon of army officers, will relinquish power uh, so easily in six months as they have pledged in Egypt. Um, institutional building, I, I don't have to remind you, is a very prolonged and complex process. Uh, it takes decades to rebuild uh, broken institutions uh, in Libya, uh, uh, in Egypt. Uh, the opposition is extremely weak. I mean, take Egypt, for example. Uh, the, 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 the label that Egyptian parties, they use, they, in Arabic, it's, it's called Ahzab min Waraq. It's paper parties. That is, uh, they have no real social base. They have offices in central Cairo. Uh, they don't really have a, a social constituency. Uh, even the millions of Egyptians that have been politicized in the last few years, they need space to organize, to institutionalize, to give their voice uh, an institutional framework. Uh, I don't believe that Egypt is ready for elections at this particular moment in six months because, first of all, the opposition is extremely weak, the formal opposition. And the millions of uh, politicized Egyptians need time to organize. Um, and secondly, if you have elections today, even if the Muslim Brotherhood does not field a majority of candidates, as it has pledged to do, the Muslim Brotherhood will likely garner a critical uh, uh, component mm -hmm. of the new parliament. And that's why I, it, it just defies common sense why the army officers will say in Egypt, we will relinquish power to a civilian government in six months. You need to prepare the country. You need, of course, to constitutional changes. You need uh, to give time and space for the opposition. There are so many questions. Uh, you need to begin the process of creating a productive economic base, um, and on and on and on. You need to institutionalize the relationship between the new forthcoming government and the uh, military uh, institutions. There are more questions, really, than um, I mean, convincing answers about how long and how difficult and how rock, rocky and how dangerous the transition process. The transition, I mean, take Eastern Europe, for example. It has taken Eastern Europe almost more than two decades. Um, uh, what I'm trying to suggest is that the transition process uh, in Arab societies will prove to be as difficult, as challenging, as complex. This brings me to the question of the US. I think in the case of Egypt, the United States has tremendous influence over the Egyptian army for the simple reason that this relationship goes back to the late 1970s. And a huge chunk of the budget of the army in Egypt, as you well know, comes from American uh, military aid. On average, the American military has been receiving about $1.3 billion a year. That is, that's a measure. And throughout the crisis, uh, the United States uh, was in direct contact several times a day with the uh, chiefs, the, the military chiefs. And my take on it is that uh, in the case of Egypt, the United States can really play a very positive role. If, if the United States really is genuine about nudging the army to transition, to help to guide the transitional process, if the United States really is genuine about a, an open and transparent and civilian government. So far, I think 
the United States role has been more positive than negative, even though it has taken the United States quite a bit of time to come to terms with the social upheaval taking place um, in Egypt. I think in Bahrain, uh, you underestimate how critical the U.S. role has been in nudging the royal family in order to really engage the uh, opposition and to impress on the royal family uh, the gravity of the crisis. Because as you all know, there was a major struggle taking place within the royal family between the hardcore and the moderate. So far, the moderate wing, uh, led by Crown Prince Salman, has basically gained the upper hand. But again, the jury is still out. That is, even though we're beginning to see the, the beginning of a peaceful resolution in Bahrain, uh, we have to wait and see how far uh, the royal family in Bahrain would meet and the grievances would address the grievances of Bahrainis in terms of constitutional changes, in terms of integrating the dominant Shiite community into the political and social process, in terms of the prime minister in, in Bahrain has been in power for 40 years. Um, again, what, uh, it, but yet we are seeing the beginning. Uh, we, we have to be careful about uh, but my, I mean, I'm, I'm very critical of U.S. foreign policy, don't misunderstand me, but I think in the case of Egypt um, and the case of Bahrain, the United States can play a critical role in really uh, uh, exerting pressure on the army and the royal family to guide the transition and to relinquish power to a, uh, a civilian government in the next uh, uh, eight, nine months or year. Uh, well, I mean, I think in Bahrain, uh, I mean, that's why the United States and the Western powers and in Libya and Algeria, they're terrified. I mean, already, as you all know, the oil prices now, it's over $100 for a barrel of oil. Uh, that is, there is, they're terrified. I mean, you should see all the, uh, I mean, the huge investment firms. I mean, this is today, they're all busy uh, talking about the risk factors in the Gulf. About No, I'm serious, as we talk. Uh, you have thousands of risk analysts in saying, you know, what are the prospects, what are the challenges, will the revolution reach the deserts in Arabia, um, and what will be the effects on the oil economies. Um, I think, again, this is probably you didn't ask the question, my take on it is that even though there is no safe regime at this particular moment, uh, Saudi is less vulnerable than Libya and Algeria and other states for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, Saudi has had, I mean, billions of dollars to invest. I mean, you're Saudi, and I don't mean to, to I mean, most of the population is really on welfare in a way that, 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 that even yesterday uh, the king uh, promised 15% hike the entire public sector, almost $40 billion. Uh, so the fact is, even though there is poverty in the kingdom, but you have money to go around and to, uh, to basically try to uh, uh, meet some of the grievances of the uh, uh, Saudis. And secondly, what really distinguishes, again, since we're talking about contacts and differences, what distinguishes Saudi from other countries, you also have a social contract between the uh, conservative religious establishment and the House of Saudi itself. And this particular social contract serves as a foundation, a relatively solid foundation. Whenever you have cracks in this particular uh, social contract, like in the 1990s, you have instability. The rise of Al-Qaeda and very dissident clerics was the result of, of, of cracks in this particular context. Um, and thirdly, there are major challenges for Saudi. I mean, you have also a similar young Saudis like yourself, who basically have aspirations and hopes and, and wishes 
about more open societies, about reforms, about uh, having a greater say in the political process. So uh, your generation does not differ much from uh, the other Arab generations. You also have a critical community, and I'm sorry I'm using terms like Sunnis and Shiites, but a critical community, a minority community that feels disfranchised, and that's a Shiite community that feels discriminated against, like its counterpart in Bahrain. And the community does not really feel that its aspirations and its hopes are met by the kingdom. You also have a very uh, volatile situation in Yemen. Yemen is a state uh, which is the poorest Arab country, as you all know. Uh, more than 60% of Yemenis live on below the poverty line or in poverty or below the poverty line. Uh, Yemen shares one of the longest borders of Saudi Arabia. Um, if Yemen plunges into instability, that, would, that particular likelihood would have tremendous impact on the economies in the Gulf and also on stability in the Gulf, as happened last year, as you know, when the Houthi uh, uh, rebellion uh, migrated to some areas in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. So uh, I want you to know that the Western powers, the United States, and they're very concerned about the, whether the virus would mutate and basically reach uh, the, the Arabian desert and the oil fields. It's a very serious product, even though, and I could be wrong, my take on it is that Saudi is not as vulnerable as, and I, as vulnerable as the other well, let, states. Let, I, me, let me challenge uh, you on that one. Please. <coughs> let, let's say that uh, the Saudi young, uh, because they're well off, relatively speaking, and because they have those aspirations that others in the region have, and because they're the Facebook generation, will just be as formidable and maybe even more so equipped with, uh, in a sense, the, 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 the know-how, the fact that they've traveled, the fact that they're exposed to a great deal and so on, they'll, they'll be even more frustrated about the situation. And you add to that another component, a religious component that perhaps is not with the regime, and a liberal secular middle class of businessmen and others who want a degree of opening up, and you have um, uh, the, the, the eastern province and uh, the Shias there emboldened by what has happened in Bahrain. And, uh, and it could go on and on. And you have some young princes who also would like of a course. degree of opening up. And you have a lot of components there for a great deal of friction and yes. fissures in that society, which will not necessarily man manifest themselves or unravel in the same way right. as they've done elsewhere. But we'll see small protests that are quelled, uh, in the same way that when we saw women come out, that was quelled, but perhaps bigger, perhaps. And then they'll find themselves maybe a square in Jeddah. Uh, and uh, perhaps our Saudi yeah. friend can suggest one now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there you go. I mean, they might start up with 20, then 500. Yes, and, uh, I mean, you know, it is, it is. and it goes on and on. I don't so, think it's going to stop. Uh, it, we're really at the beginning of the, of the crisis, not the end. I mean, uh, that's why, uh, I mean, all the components are there. I mean, that's my own reading, is mm -hmm. that even though the risks are uh, there, mm -hmm. that Saudi is less vulnerable. This does not mean that we might not wake up in the next few days, in particular if the Qadhafi regime is gone, particularly if the wave reaches Algeria and Morocco and Jordan. Um, and the fact is, the reality is, when the, on, the first, on the first day of his return to Saudi from Morocco, he was recovering from an operation. The king 
basically increased the salaries by 15% tells me that he is very concerned. And that uh, always builds badly uh, because they've done uh, that elsewhere, haven't uh, they? And it, <laughs> yes. it was the beginning of the end. So it is, it is, it is real. I mean, mm. uh, but uh, my own reading is that I think uh, in the short term I, I don't see any kind of a critical mass along the same lines. And I, I could be wrong, uh, as we have been many, many times. I think Maha's arguments are also uh, well stated and they, they touch on very sensitive elements of the political equation in Saudi. The final question about the internet by now, I thought we, we, we tried to answer is that mm. it's really a process of accumulation. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's been taking place for quite a while. And I think, in a way, um, I talked about the human agency and at, uh, Abu Azizi in Tunisia, that how unhuman, I mean, soul, uh, huge heart and a, a, an educated young man who was humiliated trying to make a living, that particularly really sparked has ignited the fires in, in uh, so the crisis was simmering for many many years um, and it's a process of accumulation in terms of the uh, a new uh, revolution the new media and the process and once the spark ignited then really uh, in a way there is uh, uh, no return uh, whatsoever and um, my sense just to add to that very briefly about Twitter and Facebook it hasn't actually been a long time it's interesting how you think of that as a long time when you say three years or five. To my mind, that's not long. It really is not. It's not long. It's that's uh, actually very fast. In fact, it, it, it yes. And it's interesting uh, that you see that yeah. as as a long time, and it, you know <laughs> that in the in the history of the suffering of the peoples and the, for something to actually come about and change things in three years is, is very fast. Mm. Let's take some more That's questions. Right. Let's do some from this side of the, of the lecture theatre, if there's it's, any. It's Kamala. Yes. It's Kamala. Right. Yes. Sorry, my eyesight is... I know. <laughs> um, as, uh, sorry, my name is Adam, and I'm from SOAS. Um, as Dr. Azam said, uh, the dust hasn't even really risen yet. But do either of you have any forecasts whatsoever as to the effect that this change in, um, in political uh, status quo in the Middle East and North Africa will have on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Thanks. Thank you. I, again, if we try, anyone on this side of the, I'm trying to be fair, but I don't think there's any on this side. Is there? Okay, go ahead. Hi, my name is Helen Twist. Um, you both touched upon the fact that without a figurehead, or the fact that although the figurehead is gone, the institutions still have um, parts of the regime within them, and that's a much more sort of entrenched situation within all of these countries. I wondered if you could um, elaborate a little bit on how this will affect um, the patronage networks and also tribal structures within the, the wider Middle East, and whether the fact that the youth has been part of these uprisings, whether actually that's going to lead to a sort of fundamental change in the way that things are in terms of power structures within the Middle East. Thank Kamal, you. Can Kamal, yes. Kamal. Yeah, the, 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 next to you, please. Yes. Sorry, or right at the back, so I yeah. couldn't see. Right at the back there, the gentleman with his hand up. Kamil Mahdi from... Kamil Mahdi from LSE Middle East Centre. 
Um, well, I, I think you, to, you, you talked about uh, the uh, uh, dichotomy of dictatorship versus uh, the Islamist uh, movements, but I think there's a, a slightly uh, different one uh, to that, which is the question of uh, social uh, de democratic politics and social programs on the one hand and identity politics uh, on uh, the other, which is the dominant perception of policymakers in, 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 uh, uh, in the West. Uh, how is that, uh, in your view now, uh, affected by uh, this uh, uprising? Okay, one more. Um, that side right at the back. Two, I think two rows from the back. Hi, my name's Andrew Kite. Um, there's been a lot of mention of the, uh, the role of the military following the toppling of, of the, the figurehead. Uh, with the situation in Libya, given that the military has been deliberately kept less strong by Colonel G uh, Gaddafi and that there's been such a bloodier conflict, uh, do you think that the military there will have sufficient uh, manpower and expertise and also sufficient authority among the people to carry on should he eventually be toppled? And if not, who else will take charge in the interim period? Can we, sorry, I think we didn't hear the question right at the back very well. The gentleman right at the back. And then we'll... we'll the microphone malfunctioned. Sorry, sorry Kamal. Yes, sorry, it's, sorry. It, it, it's really about uh, identity politics, not just uh, the Islamist uh, movements uh, as such, but the uh, sectional nature of identity politics as opposed to the broad social uh, uh, perspective of uh, uh, wider uh, movements. In other words, the uh, vertical versus horizontal divisions in the uh, societies of uh, the region, how that is now going to be uh, perceived, uh, uh, affected, uh, and so on in, in, in uh, uh, policy uh, making uh, uh, circles as well as in the reality in the region itself. Sorry, that's any better. Thanks. <laughs> it's all yours, Boaz. <laughs> and you can start with that question. <laughs> are, you, are you sure? Yes, I'm positive. I'm the She's chair. very generous. <laughs> Horizontal rather than vertical, <laughs> I seem to remember. Uh, let me start with the, most, with the more difficult question about uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict. Uh, I want to save Maha. <laughs> and he had uh, You know, one of, one of the lessons uh, that has not been, uh, I mean, discussed and examined is that what does the let's whether we call it social revolutions or the intifada or the upheaval really what kind of lessons we should take uh, via the Arab-Israeli conflict let me tell you my own biased view what lessons I would have taken if I were sitting in Tel Aviv one of the lessons I would have taken is that I should not put all my eggs in one basket that is the basket of dictators in order to really uh, maintain and retain the status quo. One of the lessons I would have taken is that uh, 
that uh, Israel is not the only democratic island in the region that democracy seems to be coming to the entire Middle East. I should really welcome the democratic forces and voices because, after all, if I'm really a genuine democracy, if I believe that somehow democracy, remember the whole notion, democracies don't make wars against one another. And Western literature is a big thing. And Israel uh, has made a big fuss about the fact that it's the only democratic island in a, a region, in a, in a sea of Arab reaction and authoritarianism. Yet we don't see Israeli leaders embracing or even welcoming the new changes that we are witnessing in the region. In fact, Israel from day one was terrified that Mubarak was going to leave Egypt. Uh, one of the lessons, again, if I was sitting in, in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, I would say that the only way out of this particular dilemma is to resolve my security dilemma. And how do I resolve my security dilemma? Simply by trying to engage the Palestinians, by simply accepting international consensus on the peace process, a two-state solution. The Palestinians are not asking for the moon. Uh, and I'm going to come back to the question about the Palestinians. They're asking for a uh, tiny uh, state uh, on the West Bank and Gaza with its capital in East Jerusalem. That's the only way out. And what, what, what has happened in the region is that this will exacerbate Israel's security dilemma as long as Israel leaders subscribe to the notion that uh, my way or the highway, that is, uh, uh, I will do whatever I want. I will challenge international opinion. I will basically embarrass and humiliate President Obama if he tells me to have a freeze for just three months. If the Palestinians offer me everything on a silver platter, I would dismiss them and humiliate them. Uh, because the reality is Israel lost Iran 40 years ago. It has just lost Turkey, the only friend uh, in the region. And now I think regardless of what government comes to Egypt, make no doubt about it. Egyptian foreign policy will never be the same. Egyptian foreign policy will never be the same. Even if the military remain in power, Egypt will never serve as a contractor for mm -hmm. either Israel or the United States. One of the major outcries in Egypt was uh, Nourid uh, Karama. Karama. Mm -hmm. That is, the idea is that Egypt serving to basically tighten the, the siege of Gaza. This will change. Uh, and the loss of Egypt is a major, major uh, 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 piece and the puzzle of the security dilemma. That is, if I were an Israeli strategist or a security or rational uh, politician, I would say, how do I resolve my security apparatus uh, dilemma? By engaging in a genuine uh, peace process. I'm not suggesting that Camp David, the Camp David Peace Treaty is at risk. That's not the question. There is no political party. There is no social movement. There is no one in Egypt even talking about it. That's not the question. But the reality is with the changes that are taking place, we're going to have government much more vocal, much more in harmony with the aspirations of the people. Egypt will become much more vocal in terms of supporting the Palestinians calling for a two-state solution. Neither the United States, you ask me about the United States, unfortunately, truly, neither the United States nor Israel has absorbed the big lessons. Uh, and initially, as you all well know, they were terrified of the changes in Egypt because, well, Mubarak, I mean, was good, a good man. Uh, for Israel. And what Israel and the United States have done in the last few years, they have discredited Abbas. They have undermined the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority basically no longer exists except on paper as a security apparatus in the West Bank. 
uh, again, Hamas, and I, I hope you disagree with me, it really has gained popularity, in particular after the, the Al Jazeera uh, release, as you know, the, the documents by the Palestinian uh, team uh, about, and, the, and, and the concessions and the humiliation uh, they received by the, that what, what the documents, what the released leaked documents by the Palestinians, it showed clearly that, in fact, the Palestinians have no partner. Um, and and uh, the Americans were not really playing a, a, an honest broker in trying to... Uh, the Palestinians, in fact, if, if you read carefully the documents, uh, Israel would never, could never dream of such a, a magnificent offer, on, really on a silver platter. So I hope, really, I do hope, that when the dust settles on the battlefields, and still, because it's still unfolding, both the United States and Israel would come to realize that there is a way out of the security dilemma. And the way out serves everyone. Every, in fact, it serves Israel's security much more than the Palestinians, I would argue. That is a two-state solution uh, which guarantee basically Israel's security, security for Israel and justice and security for the Palestinians. Now the easy questions for Ma. <laughs> All right, we're running out of time anyway, but let me add something on Palestine-Israel which I think is important, and that is we're looking at the Palestine-Israel conflict and the issue of states, but I think the, in a sense the impact also of the protests and the changes that we've seen in the region are going to impact on the Palestinian leadership. And again, how that is going to work itself out or uh, is unclear. But given those revelations about the compromises from Al Jazeera, given the lack of, uh, again, uh, connections with corruption, given uh, the, the whole political structure, um, I don't think that the Palestinians, as a, uh, the Palestinian Authority, is also going to be immune from questioning from its own people. I think this kind of empowerment that we're seeing across the region is also going to affect the Palestinian leadership. People are going to be asking more questions of their leadership, whether it be Hamas or Fatah, and they want greater accountability. And I think that is something that, again, we haven't seen enough of because of the very situation of the Palestinians and the issue of occupation and so on. But I think it's simmering and it's there. I think in terms of Libya, I can't quite remember the question, but I have this the, to say. The, whether, what is the, it? whether the military will, will be able to basically uh, help guide Libya in the same way that the Tunisian military and the Egyptian military. I think... Not to the same extent. I think what we're seeing, first of all, I, we, I don't know that much about the Libyan military in the terms of its higher echelons. What we know is that in the middle ranking officers, we've seen cases where we've had these two planes uh, refuse to bomb their own people and land in Malta. We've seen cases again where We've heard of cases where they've parachuted out of planes, again, in order not to bomb. So I believe in the middle ranks, you, are, you have dissent. In the upper echelons, I bow to your expertise, well, I don't uh, know. But I would, uh, I would basically submit that in all these countries, you're going to have an increasing uh, engagement of the military in order to... Uh, put in order to maintain some degree of security after the fall of the leader and create and, and, and 
really protect a transitional period and oversee a transitional period. So I can't see in Libya the, the military withdrawing altogether, but I can't say at this stage, given the lack of transparency, quite honestly, uh, what kind of role it will have. Obviously, there isn't the degree of leverage the United States has. It doesn't have that leverage in Libya that it had in Egypt or it has in Bahrain. And that is, uh, you know, that's a very important thing. And that's why, in a sense, I agree with what you said about U.S. foreign policy. In a sense, it's playing a very important role in promoting this process towards democratization. But it only can only happen in countries where it has leverage and where it, it has actually supported. It's ironic. It's where it's supported authoritarian regimes that it has the greatest leverage in helping the democratization process. A word on Libya. Do we have a minute for Libya? Yes, go ahead. Uh, really, from everything we know, and we know very little, as you all know, we don't have, I mean, information, we don't have a portrait, but the, the entire state structure is fracturing. I mean, the state itself appears to be collapsing. Uh, unlike Tunisia and Egypt, where you, had, you have a coherent military structure, a coherent uh, military council, you don't have such a thing in Libya. In fact, uh, the army split now along multiple lines. Uh, units, brigades, uh, army officers, uh, I mean, it's all over the place. And uh, 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 even Qaddafi still has uh, tens of thousands, uh, between 10,000 and, and 20,000 troops. According to uh, credible reports, there's still support, in particular certain brigades, which are very loyal uh, to Qaddafi. In the last 15 or 20 years, unfortunately, Qaddafi uh, uh, created multiple uh, uh, units within the army itself, loyal to himself personally. And he populated the army with tribal elements from his own tribe. Uh, 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 multiple layers of really uh, lack of uh, coordination, lack of training. Uh, the army itself uh, no longer is the potent force. Uh, uh, is, is not a potent force, is not a coherent force in the same way that the Tunisian army and the Egyptian army or the Algerian army. And that's why my fear is that now you have units of the army basically clashing all over Libya, even in Tripoli and Benghazi and other cities. Uh, you have followers of, of Qaddafi fighting other army units, and this is a dis disastrous for Libya. Because if, if uh, uh, Qaddafi decides to fight to the end, as seems to be the case, if he digs in, as seems to be the case in Tripoli and the western areas, you might have a prolonged fight, a prolonged fight in which units of the army will basically kill one another and, and kill, uh, uh, I mean, uh, 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 part of the population. And this would mean a rockier transitional period because you don't have a coherent uh, army uh, 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 unit like you do, or structure like you have in Tunisia um, and uh, uh, in Egypt. And what makes the situation very different about Tunisia, about uh, uh, Libya, uh, I mean, it, the, the, there is the cult of Qaddafi and nothing else, no institution whatsoever. Say what have you about Egypt, you have a thick layer of institutions, civil society, relatively free media, uh, uh, you had uh, non-governmental associations, attorneys, uh, uh, doctors, uh, professionals, engineers, um, even though a weak opposition, a weak opposition. Uh, so there exists what I call a thick layer of civil society. While what Qaddafi has done in the last 42 years, basically to decimate this vibrant civil society and substitute the cult of personality for uh, institutions. And that's why my fear is that the Libyan uh, I mean, case is going to be bloody indeed and prolonged indeed, unless Qaddafi is, uh, leaves the picture or gets killed in the next uh, few days. Uh,
it, it's really a very troubling and challenging case. Well, with that, I think we're going to have to close the meeting. I'd like to thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.